Hey, welcome to the 87th episode of Two Writers Singing Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a contributor to The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to speeches to novels to love letters to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Zach Berman, the Philadelphia Eagles beat writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Philadelphia Daily News. And I kind of thought heading into Super Bowl 53, it'd be cool to discuss covering the world's biggest game with a guy who did the last season with the team on his watch. So we get deep into media day, into making the actual game story count on stage Standing out while surrounded by 300 of your closest peers. It ain't Brad Shaw to Swan, but it's the next best thing. And it's right now on Two Writers, Sling and Yang. All right, Zach, first of all, uh, as I just told you two seconds ago, um, I told you we were scheduled this for 9 a.m. I DM you. I'm like, can we start 10 minutes late? You're like, sure. I get home. My house is under construction because it's falling off a cliff. And... There's a bulldozer going, and I'm thinking, crap, I can't do that. My dog is going crazy. So right now, I'm sitting in front of a Starbucks milking their Wi-Fi with my dog by my side. So uh, somehow, we're making we're making history. I was going to say, I, I, I have a far less interesting story. I'm here transcribing audio. So uh, so this is actually a, a, a very welcome break. Oh, man. I'll be doing that in about an hour. I'll be sitting somewhere transcribing two hours of J.R. Ryder. So, uh is that you know what I wasn't even gonna I wouldn't have even thought to ask you about this, but I will. Do you consider transcribing the worst part of this job? I do, uh, yes, because just the amount of time it takes. Uh, if 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 I ever had the opportunity, like to have an intern transcribe, that would be the greatest thing. Um, but no, I I I say that's that's the most tedious part. But it is it is necessary in in that. Uh, when it's a long interview, you go back and and you can kind of find the uh, the, the different parts that really jump out. So I, so I, I do see the utility in it. Let's say you have a one-hour interview you're transcribing. How long does it actually take you to transcribe that one-hour interview? About 90 minutes. Yeah, that's very strong. See, my problem is uh, I'll be transcribing and maybe the interview will mention something about the McDonald's and so-and-so. And I'll think, oh, McDonald's. And I'll Google McDonald's, and then I'll start reading about Ronald McDonald. Then I'll start reading about the history of Ronald McDonald. <laughs> then I'll start thinking about the, the guy who played the Burger King mascot. And then five hours later, I'm like, oh, yeah, I have to transcribe tape. So you are, you're the beat writer for the uh, – you cover the Philadelphia Eagles for the Inquirer and the Daily News. And, um, you know, another thing I asked you uh, before we started was whether you identify as an Inquirer writer or a Daily News writer. And you said generally you tell people first the Inquirer, but your stuff appears in both papers. and. Uh, I sort of wonder, so I went to the University of Delaware, and when I was there, the, the Inquirer and the Daily News, they weren't just two separate papers in Philly. They were heated rivals, like heated, heated rivals. Sure. Where Some of the sports writers wouldn't talk to each other, and the columnists hated each other. And Do you feel at all that you were missing out on that? Like, Do you feel like the era of the great two newspaper town where you have two newspapers going at each other hard, do you feel like you've missed that phenomenon, and if there's a, a loss in not having that? I was on the tail end of that, so I I I was able to experience that. I I actually worked for the Daily News before I worked for the Inquirer back when they were separate, and and then when I started on the Eagles beat at the Inquirer, uh, the the Daily News was our rival un- until we 
merged operations. So I did experience it. I, I do think that there's benefit in being in that two-paper town or multi-paper town in terms of the competition, the ambition. But I will say on the Eagles beat, there's so much local and regional competition, even though the Inquirer and Delaware News are together. You have the Delaware newspaper, you have the Lehigh Valley newspaper, Atlantic City newspaper, and then you have all these websites too. Uh, That competition still exists, at least for the Eagles. Well, I wanted to talk to you a lot about covering the Super Bowl because here we are uh, less than a week away now from the Super Bowl. You covered, obviously, you covered last year, your team, the Eagles, won the Super Bowl. And I would love to sort of break this down. Number one, is covering a Super Bowl good or nightmarish? <laughs> it's awesome. I mean, it's 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 definitely not nightmarish. It's it's fun. It's competitive. I I love covering the Super Bowl even when the team I covered wasn't in it. But it was it was a different animal when the team I covered was in it. Okay, so how so? Like, all right, the Eagles win the NFC Championship last year. You have a two week gap before that and the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Number one, how early do you go to the Super Bowl site? Like, how far in advance do you go? And number two, what are you doing during that time leading up to the Super Bowl? Like, how are you thinking about it and how are you plotting it out? And what's the approach? I get to the Super Bowl Sunday night, the week before the game. But that whole week leading up to it, I'm still at the team facility every day. They they still have practice. They still have media access. Uh, and that is somewhat comparable to what the regular season's like. Uh, so So you're still there writing stories every day. It, even when we get it, it might seem that kind of the Super Bowl week and hoopla starts when we got there in in Minneapolis. But the reality is, after the NFC Championship game, I mean, we're at the facility the next day. So, uh, so that that really didn't change. And, and then, I, I guess the difference is, so in in the past when I I didn't cover when my when the team I, I covered was not in it. I always thought how how kind of cool or, or or fun it would be to have the team you cover in it just because of you know the institutional knowledge the relationships that you have plus the access everyone is available you know at the Super Bowl whereas there's there's you know during the week leading up to it before you get to Minneapolis during the season that you know there's training rooms for players to hide in when they're getting treatment executives are off limits um, and it's it's just a totally different animal once you're there. Uh, I, I guess though the flip side is that everyone else in the country is there, and they're getting the same access. And a lot of these stories that are uh, kind of fresh and ripe for a national audience, we've written about, and I've 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 written about you know every day since July really. So my readers aren't getting introduced to Nick Foles's path to the Super Bowl, or you know Malcolm Jenkins is social consciousness or, or Brandon Brooks overcoming anxiety for the first time because because we've written that over the year over the years even uh, so so you know it, it takes a lot of coordination and 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 you ask what it's like in that week before you get there uh, a lot of it's coordinating really with you know the other beat writers and my editors and the staff at, at, at large I'm on a pretty unique beat in that there's four Beat writers from you know the Inquirer and the Daily News uh, who 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 cover the team every day, and then there's four general columnists, and we had over a dozen reporters at the Super Bowl. I'm from our our company, so uh, 
you know, and, and, we're, and we're all competitive. We all want good stories and not everything's on the table. So a, a lot of it was was kind of the, the coordination of the stories. There used to be a thing, and I don't know if it's such a thing anymore, but maybe it is, where, you know, the NBA Finals, let's say um, Shaq is playing for the Orlando Magic, and they're in the NBA Finals, they're playing Houston, and there's all the media, and Shaq will say, whoa, 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 let me take care of my guys. And he'll take the beat writers from the Orlando Sentinel on the different papers, and he'll pull them aside and say, I want to give you guys, I want to give you guys, make sure you guys have your time, because you've been with us all year. When you're covering a Super Bowl, Super Bowl media day, do the Eagle players give a crap that it's you? Like, do they give you, is there any perk to being you as opposed to Peter King or whoever else, a million other writers from out of town? Well, the perk is that they know you, you know, that, that you're in there, you're in the locker room, you know, four or five days a week uh, during the season. So that, that relationship exists. And, and, and so that's the perk. And, in terms of them kind of taking care of you, that, that happens more, um, in the week before you get out there. You know, for instance, like, uh, Doug Peterson met with, with the beat writers before he went out there. Um, Carson Wentz met with the Philly media before he went out there. Uh, and so you, so that, that happens before they get to Minneapolis. Once you're in Minneapolis, it's the relationships um, that you have that that's really the benefit. And, and, uh, and I, I, I did see that I was, I was the beneficiary of it. in in, in, in some cases with some players or some coaches, it doesn't really matter. You're just, you know, someone with, with the uh, credential on your, you know, around your neck. But in other cases, there definitely is an advantage being someone who's there every day. How do you approach media day? How does that entire day go? Because I have no idea except from snippets I've seen on TV through the years. So actually now it's it's a media night and, you know, it's it's one hour late at night. It's pushed against deadline. So for a quarter working on a newspaper deadline, it's, you know, it's it's a real tough, uh, tough ask. So uh, the way I approached it personally was um, I I didn't spend my time there with players who I could get during that week, during the week before any point in the season. I, I really focused on people who I would only be able to get in the media day setting. And specifically last season, that was Howie Roseman, you know, the, the top executive on the team, the de facto general manager. You know, he, he put the team together and he had a real interesting story. He was cast aside by Chip Kelly. He, he kind of came back in the power and really put together the Super Bowl roster. So that was one of my assignments going there was 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 to write kind of beat Howie Roseman's story. And uh I spent my entire media night focused on that story because you know the players that were there, I was gonna get cracks at them later on in the week and and I spoke to them the week before. I mean, I always, when I think of the media day, well, now night, but the media day, I always think of someone asking Doug Williams if he's always been a black quarterback. Like that to me was the moment that has always come to define the sort of inanity of it all. But am I, am I looking at it through a skeptical eye? Is it actually this beautiful, great thing that's awesome? No, it's not a beautiful, great thing. That's, that's, that's <laughs> awesome. If, if you're there to try to get substantive stories, um, because, you know, if, if you're there trying to kind of ask someone to, a question that requires nuance has context, and then you have, you know, someone dressed as as a character or, or um, 
asking an off the wall question. Um, there's certainly no rhythm to the interview there. Uh, and you're not going to have success really asking, asking those nuanced questions to anyone sitting on a podium there. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's all part of that Super Bowl experience. And the reality is that most of the reporters there are not getting their legit, you know, their stories from that media night. That's more made for TV event. Um, you know, they're spending, the next few days when, when you're literally sitting at a table with the players in a hotel ballroom, um, that's kind of where you get your more substantive stories. You wrote a piece leading up to the Super Bowl. It was, uh, and I, I actually thought it was the most interesting storyline of the Super Bowl. Uh, your headline here is, uh, Eagles Carson Wentz goes from star to spectator, but he still contributes. And, um, your lead was Carson Wentz hoisted the NFC championship trophy into the Philadelphia air last Sunday night. A smile stretching across his face. He hugged Nick Foles during an extended on-field embrace. He held teammate Torrey Smith's son, found baseball star noted Eagles fan Mike Trout for a handshake, and accepted congratulations from adoring Eagles fans. Then he walked into the locker room with his right hand grasping a cane to help him walk. First of all, it was, a, it was an excellent story. I thought this, this question hovered over it all, which is, how does Carson Wentz really, really, truly feel right now? We know he says he's happy and he's just happy to be there and he loves Nick Falls and blah, blah, blah. But inside there has to be some inner turmoil, I would think. And I wonder, like, is he impossible? Because you didn't really express that in your story. He seemed very happy and I'm content. Are you looking for him to say, fuck, I'm so angry, but I can't say it? Are you looking for an emotion that he is unwilling to express? Or is it theoretically possible he actually does not possess that anger? You know, it's it's an interesting question. I I I wouldn't call it anger, but the human emotion he absolutely had, and and to kind of give context, so so there was a corresponding story to to that that my colleague wrote, you know, and and they appeared together that was kind of about that human emotion Carson Wentz had. Um, so the way that story worked was I was assigned to to write about Carson Wentz's role with the team and, and, and what was happening behind the scenes for the Sunday that the team left for, for Minneapolis. And at that point, Carson Wentz had not spoken publicly since the injury. And so I had reported out the story. It was due on, on Friday afternoon and I'm in the locker room on Friday and, uh, and Carson Wentz, uh, just, just walks out and he's, he's, he's ready to talk, you know? So I, I basically had my story written and then, and then all of a sudden Carson talks and it changes the story a bit. So we had a few stories from there and, and some of those other comments were found in the corresponding story or the other story. But to answer the question, Carson absolutely had those human emotions. He wanted to be the guy on the podium there. He, he was, he was the MVP candidate. He was the franchise quarterback that, that would have been his Super Bowl. You know, this, this young ascending quarterback. With the game literally in the closest city, the closest major city to where he grew up in North Dakota, it was kind of it would have pit him against Tom Brady, um, and he was a spectator, and, and he was he really tried to kind of stay in the background during the injury, but uh, at least publicly, but he definitely had that human emotion, and he admitted to it too that it it, it was. Uh, I mean, he was happy for his teammates, obviously, but but he wanted to be that guy, no doubt. 
I just find it fascinating. Like I, I mentioned earlier, I, I'm working on this book about the Lakers of the of the 96 to 04. And in the 2000-2001 season, J.R. Ryder was on the team. And J.R. Ryder had been, I mean, he was crazy and erratic and always late and blah, blah, blah. But he'd been a he'd been an all-star. He won the slam dunk contest. He averaged about 19 a game. And Phil Jackson didn't put him on the playoff roster. And they won the NBA championship. And the guy had always wanted to win an NBA championship. And he told me yesterday, I just talked to him yesterday, he said it was the, them winning the NBA championship was the worst moment of his career. Because he felt like I'd waited all this time. I worked so hard. And we won it. And I did absolutely nothing. And I just think there's a part of athletes that it's always like we are required to say, oh, but they're happy for their teammates and blah, blah, blah. But like the misery of not being part of something you're supposed to be part of is really profound. And it seems like it's really hard to get guys to admit that. Oh, you're you're absolutely correct. And, and you know, the Eagles last year had a few guys like that, like like Jason Peters, their left tackle. This guy's a, a future Hall of Fame left tackle, had never won a playoff game in his career. And, uh, you know, he he gets hurt in October and all of a sudden the team makes this run that 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 kind of he had come back or, or he had kept playing, trying to trying to win the Super Bowl, and, and he's on the sideline for it. You know, Darren Sproles was the same way. Jordan Hicks was the same way. And, I, I you know, speaking to, to those guys, that was a real emotion. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't know if they expressed it in the way that J.R. Ryder did, but uh, they, they definitely felt that in their, own, in, in, in their own kind of way. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, and our dog, Norma. Casey, what if you could get a free San Antonio Gunslinger's jersey from 503 Sports, the kings of throwback sports merchandise, but all you had to do is give away our dog, Norma? I would never do that. How about a Gunslinger's jersey, a Wrangler's hat, and two Chicago Blitz t-shirts? Would the dog be treated well? I mean, probably. Okay, I'm in. All right, just go to 503-sports.com and pick out what you want. They'll come get the dog next week. Oh, stop whining. So you're covering the Eagles. You're a really good beat writer. You know, you have a reputation in the business, blah, blah, blah. Do you, are you allowed to be happy that they win the Super Bowl? Like, are you allowed to take pleasure in guys you've covered all year winning? Or do you need to have the same emotion and same reactions, whether they win or lose? Well, you have the, the same emotion, same reaction in the sense that, like, literally when they win the Super Bowl, uh, my focus at that moment is clicking send on, you know, this, this story that is, 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 is going to live in posterity essentially in Philadelphia. Um, so, so you're not focused on any of the other emotions surrounding it. Um, but then when you're in the locker room and, and you kind of see the, the joy, like, like the unbridled joy from these players, from these coaches, it, it was, a unique scene in that regard. Like I, I, I led my book with the locker room scene and it kind of, it hits you there. Like it, it, you don't feel it in, in the way that like the players and the team does, or even the fans do, but, but there definitely is the human emotion of being able to to chronicle something that like is literally so meaningful for, uh, Philadelphia, you know, I, I didn't lose sight of that. So, so you're not, I, I, I like to say you become like desensitized to the wins and the losses, but you're not dehumanized. So yeah, you, you feel good for these people that 
you're around every day and, and, and you see what they put into it. That's real. I will say like, yeah, you feel happy for them. But um, in terms of covering it, uh, I'll be completely honest. I, I had a document open on my computer and if Eagles lose story and if, if Tom Brady doesn't fumble the ball there when Brandon Graham sacks him and he leads the Patriots downfield and the Patriots win, I had a story ready to click send for the Eagles losing the Super Bowl. That's kind of the focus when you're sitting there watching it is, is doing your job. All right, wait, so do you have two documents open side by side? Are you writing an Eagles win and an Eagles lose story at the same time simultaneously? Yes, and, and because <laughs> my story has, has to go in once the game's over. And I, I, you know, I, I mean, there's certain, you know, B copy, if you will, that would appear in both. But yeah, I have an if Eagles win and if, if Patriots win, you know, if Eagles lose, I should say, if Eagles win, if Eagles lose story, uh, ready to go either way. When do you start actually writing the story? Like, sorry, so you're at the game. You're in the, are you in the main, is there a main press box in Minneapolis? Is that how it works? Like, where are you positioned? Yeah, I'm, I'm in the press box and I'm surrounded by uh, the other writers from, you know, the Inquirer and the Daily News. So I'm sitting next to them and, you know, you're, you're kind of corresponding throughout the game. And, and, uh, I was, I was pretty lucky because like I, I went there knowing the story I'm writing. Like I, I'm writing the game story. You know, some of my colleagues or, the, or if, if they're a columnist or, or, or they're writing in a company story, it's more game dependent. You know, you know, they don't know the player or the play or the theme that they're writing until halftime. Uh, but I, I know I'm, I'm writing that, that story about the game no matter what. Do you think to yourself during the game at all? In the same way, whatever, a kicker staring down a 56-yarder. Like, you would all think to yourself, I can't fuck this up. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and I, I think it during the week. Like, it's not an exaggeration to say that, like, I was in my hotel room in, in Minneapolis at night, like, thinking about this story. Because, you know, as, as much as you try to play it cool and, and you know, say every story is the same, this, this story is not the same. Like, this is a story that you're hoping people kind of have hung up in their home someday, you know, or at a restaurant, you know, and, and, uh, because I, I saw that growing up. I, you know, I saw Philly's World Series, this, the stories from when the Phillies won the World Series hanging up. And, and so you, you know, the, the magnitude of it and the gravity of the story. And so I, I was literally up at night thinking about that. Um, and I, I would have conversations with close friends of mine in the, in the business. Do I go, big picture here? Do I go micro? Do I make the lead play dependent, game dependent? Do I focus on a player? Do I focus on a theme? Like all these, these are all conversations that I was having on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but you don't know how the game's going to unfold. And uh, I mean, it, it was a classic game, which is great in terms of watching it and great in terms of kind of the richness of the story, but it's absolutely brutal on deadline. A game that, that is a, uh, as close as it was late in the fourth quarter, uh, you literally don't know how you're going to start the story. And, and the reality is there are times when you're in that position. It's a, it's a Monday night game. Um, the, the score changes in the final minute and you just don't have the right words for the moment. But, you know, the, the, the paper's not being held. You know, you need to click send on that story. So, uh, so you just hope you have the right words. But I, I put a lot of, thought into that in the week leading up to it i think it's really interesting because i've never i don't think i've ever had the experience where 
I have the night before covering something, I've kind of viewed it in the way with the nervousness and sort of anticipation that a player would. But it sounds like you and Nick Foles might have had the same <laughs> night before the game where you're both kind of losing sleep and wondering, how am I going to do? I mean, was that not an easy night's sleep for you? It, it was not an easy night's sleep for me, but I, I mean, I think what Nick Foles and the players were, were dealing with was considerably more significant, but, but, but yeah, relative to the job itself, it was comparable. Like I, I was, yeah, if, if you're going to say nervous or anxious, eager, whatever a word you would use there, that's how I was feeling the night before. Like I, I woke up early thinking about, you know, that story and, and I, I had, I'm, I'm thinking back to it now. It wasn't as much the night before the Super Bowl. It was more the, the the Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night when I was. It was always on the back of my mind. How am I going to write this story? All right. So the story is uh, headlined: Super Bowl 2018. Eagles win first Super Bowl 41-33. Stop Tom Brady Patriots. The the lead is this night will be remembered for decades in Philadelphia when old friends reminisce about where they were on Fe- February fourth, 2018. And parents tell their children about the moment the Eagles won their first Super Bowl. They remember when Doug Peterson called the trick play at the goal line, when Zach Ertz dove into the end zone in the fourth quarter, when Brandon Graham stripped Tom Brady of the ball, and when the greatest dynasty in NFL, NFL history fell to an improbable champion from Philadelphia. The Eagles won the Super Bowl. You can read that again. It's not going away. The Eagles beat the Patriots 41-33 at U.S. Bank Stadium to hoist the Lombardi Trophy for the first time in franchise history. A team with a backup quarterback, there were players who wore underdog masks throughout the playoffs because they were never favored to win. Sent Brady and Bill Belichick home with a Super Bowl loss. I grew up every year loving the Sports Illustrated uh, the week after the Super Bowl. And I would read Dr. Z or whoever it was, Pat Putnam or Dr. Z or Peter King, whoever's writing those stories, because they were always so big and so all-encompassing. And they they made you feel sort of great in reading it and they made football feel big and important. And I thought this was a great, like not just a good game story, like an all time excellent game story. How did you come up with the lead? Like when did you decide this is how I'm going to do it? This night will be remembered for decades when old friends reminisce. First off, I appreciate you saying that. I, 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 I did not have that ahead of time. I wrote that more in the, I, I believe I, I wrote that at halftime and there was a part of it and it, it, it was going to be more my nut graph. And then I was saying, this is what the story is. You know, the, the, the story is, is the, the gravity of the moment, the significance of, of, of the moment. If, if, if I'm thinking about the 15 year old back home in Philadelphia or the 50 year old back home in Philadelphia and they're experiencing this for the first time, like, what are they going to remember about this? And it's, it's not going to be as, as much the play as it is the moment. So I, I really tried to, Focus on, on the moment. Like, like this is the moment that people are going to remember and, and, and they're going to talk about that. And I didn't want to overwrite, but I didn't want to undersell it either. There are very few times in sports where like it's as significant as, as we in the press box try to make it seem. But in Philadelphia last February, like that was as significant as as we made it seem that that was probably the greatest moment in Philadelphia sports history, or at least up there. And I wanted to make sure that was reflected in my words. I, I did not want to undersell it. I was kind of funny. I spoke yesterday to a, uh, 
via Skype to a sports journalism class at Auburn. Someone said, what do you, what do you not like to see from student journalists? And I said, the one thing I hate is when someone sends a bunch of clips for you to read and it's the leaders, you know, the Eagles beat the Patriots 41 33 behind Nick Foles is blah, blah, blah. Like, I think even if you did overwrite it, which I don't feel like you did, but it certainly leans more toward overwriting than underwriting. Like you were not underselling sure. the significance of this. I actually think if you're ever going to overwrite a story, here's the one to overwrite. Like here's the one to sort of swing and go for it. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. And, and, and like, you know, I, I've been writing this game stories, you know, since taking over the beat in 2012, since I joined the beat in 2012. And, and you know, if it's like a, a game in Nashville in October, in that case, don't overstate it. You know, it's one of 16 games. But if it's the Super Bowl uh, and the first time they ever won, um, then you can overstate it. And, and, and so that's kind of the way I was thinking. You have three paragraphs down. You say Peterson gather, gathered his team together in the postgame locker room after the players danced and sang and chewed cigars and sip scotch and enjoyed a euphoria that can only be experienced after winning a Super Bowl, which is really good. You wrote, um, you recited what had become a mantra for the team. An individual can make a difference, Peterson told them, but a team makes a miracle. God damn, we made a miracle, one player shouted. We're going to party, Peterson said to tears. Philly's going to burn, another player responded. Are you, because obviously you're on a deadline here, do you um, do you write your lead? Do you run down to the locker room or are people feeding you quotes? Like, what are you doing in that case? No, so in, in this case, I was in, in the locker room the whole time, and uh, we're actually pretty lucky for the Super Bowl that – they they let us stay in there and and Doug Peterson had so many post game obligations that he actually didn't get into the locker room with his team to kind of gather and give that speech until well after the media was in there. So I was in there when when Doug Peterson walked in and at that point I had filed my running for print and I wasn't going to sub it out for print. I was going to add to it from online, rewrite for online. And, and so those graphs went in there for the online story. It was a cool experience being able to kind of be a fly on the wall and get true dialogue. I mean, not quotes, but actual dialogue. That's what I was aiming for there. And, and you know, there are a, a lot of times in the locker room where you're just kind of in a scrum and, and just trying to get that quote to run up. In this case, I was just trying to be a fly on the wall. I would talk to guys when I could, but mostly I wanted to capture the scene, capture the moment, kind of be the eyes and the ears because I realized once that celebration was, was taking place and Doug Peterson gathered the team together that like, this is what fans want to know. What's it like when the coach is giving that speech that you only really see dramatized in movies? And, and so I was pretty thrilled to be able to document that. When you're flying the, like I was a fly in the wall when I covered baseball, but I was covering baseball before Twitter, before Periscope, before Facebook, before Snapchat, all of that. And, you know, the Eagles win the Super Bowl. And I feel like less than an hour later, I'm on Twitter watching them all dance up and down to Meek Mill from my, from my kitchen on a social media feed. Is it possible to be a fly on the wall and get stuff that other people are not getting or noticing in this age? It is. Uh, now it's, it's harder because of social media, but you know, for instance, my colleague, Jeff McClain, his assignment that night was Nick Foles and he literally followed Nick Foles around from the time Nick, uh, left the field to the time Nick left the stadium. And yeah, that you're able to do that. Now a locker room celebration when everyone has a phone, there's more people seeing it. But the thing that I always 
try to keep in mind, and I actually kind of, I, I debate with other writers about this. I think that social media can sometimes be like this, this great big echo chamber. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are on, you know, Twitter an hour after the game, but there's more people who aren't, you know, there's, there's more people right. who are, you know, out there celebrating with their friends or going to sleep or doing their own thing. And, and the first time they're seeing this is when they read about it in the pages or, or, or someone emails it the next day. And, and so I guess I, I try to keep in mind that like the, the Twitter community, it's, it's almost like the talk radio community that, that you think everyone who's listening and calling in is representative of the fan base. But really there's, there's this silent majority that isn't there. That isn't, you know, that, that is not watching this live and, and you're writing for them just as much as you're writing for the other people. It is actually funny. It's like we feed off of each other's social media feeds, not realizing that most people don't give a crap. I, I have this debate with some of the other writers where because Eagles fans on Twitter are saying X, that's representative of the fan base. And I, I try to say like, like there are, you know, if, if you have X amount of Twitter followers, okay. I mean, there are 70,000 people in the stadium on Sunday. There are millions watching at home. They're not all following you or us on Twitter. Like, like, like there's, right. there's such a, a large group that you're writing to. And I make sure that I, I keep that in mind and, and, and not get caught up in that echo chamber. I had, uh, I had Gary Myers, who was a longtime New York Daily News uh, football writer on a couple months ago. He was really sort of bemoaning what it is to cover the NFL in 2018, 2019, which is, he said the league really does not feel like they need the media that much anymore. Like they don't need Zach Berman piece to drum up interest. They don't need a profile on Nick sure. Foles for people to know about Nick Foles and that it's become less access, harder to cover, harder to break down these players, harder to get to know these players. Do you find that or is that just a grumpy sort of old take? No, no, I, I find that to be the case. Now I will say this. So I'm, I'm 32 years old. All right. And I, I, I've done this now for, you know, a little more than 10 years professionally. And so I, I don't have the perspective of what it was like 20 years ago or 30 years ago. I mean, I've read about it and I've heard about it, but I, I didn't live that. I do agree that we need them more than they need us. If you look at, at what Eagles coverage does for our readership, it's huge for us. And I, I, I do think that if we cease to exist, the Eagles would go on. If the Eagles cease to exist, it, uh, it would be a big gap for us. That being said, I, I do think there's still a lot of value in this, in this storytelling. It might not be, you know, the Nick Foles story, but it's the perspective of, of Nick Foles. It's kind of knowing the questions to ask, being there every day. I, I do think there's tremendous value in that. And even if they don't need it, I, I still think that there's a lot of fans who, are following the team every day through kind of the eyes, the ears, the words of reporters who are there. Let's say Nick Falls is just an asshole. Like, let's just say he's a jerk. He's not a nice guy. He's dismissive. He's rude. He's condescending, blah, blah, blah. Does that matter? And can you write about that? For full disclosure, I, I, uh, I, I, I've, I've listened to your podcast throughout the years and, uh, I, I like something that you've talked about, which is like when someone asks this so-and-so a good guy and, and you say he's, a normal guy, you know, he has good and, and bad and, and flaws just like everyone else. I think that's, that's kind of how I would describe the, the locker room. That's why I would describe the people covering the team too, myself included. 
you know? So yeah, uh, can you write about it? In your own way, you can. You know, you can humanize these guys. And I've known Nick since he came into the league in, in 2012. So like I've seen how he's changed and matured and, and uh, I mean, I mean, gotten married, had a kid and we kind of did all that around the same time. I mean, our children were born a few weeks apart. And, and so a lot of kind of the, the uh, perspective that he has, I've kind of developed it along with him. So I do think you can kind of cover the human overall, but I, I will say that I try not to think that I totally know someone from a press conference or an hour interview or whatever it may be. It's really kind of the accumulation of being around someone for a period of time when you really get a sense of their personality. And even then, that's, that might not be their true self. That's just kind of the way they want to package it to the world. Right. We, are, we actually have a joke in my house. So we, um, my kids and I, we enjoy watching Family Feud, which is one of the most vile shows of all time if you actually watch it nowadays. But we watch <laughs> Family Feud and and Steve Harvey, who is so sexually inappropriate on that show, it's it's like Richard Dawson times a thousand, who always say, two great families today, two great families. And I always say to my daughter or my kid, I'll be like, yeah, they're probably killing their cats at home. You never actually know. Nick Foles is a perfect example, and I'm, I have no reason to think he's not a delightful human being. But we all get caught up in the, wow, he just seems like a great guy. That guy seems like a great, look, he's on Ellen. He seems like a great guy. We don't really know. And what does that even mean? I guess that's the point I was making. Like, what does that even mean? For all I know, he's like a mediocre husband and, you know, blah, blah, blah. He never does the laundry. And you know what I mean? Like, we just don't know. Not really. Yeah. Uh, to an extent, I, I do agree with you there. I, I, I think in a lot of these cases, they're putting out what they want the world to know about them. And, right. and if I was right. a, a professional athlete, I, I would do the same thing. You know, I mean, I mean we've seen it in in Philadelphia this week with, you know, with Carson Wentz, when there's a lot of speculation and, and uh, discussion about his personality and uh, it can be interpreted different ways by different people. So someone who's like in like Carson's case, he's a real type A personality, very exacting, likes things a certain way. I, I think Nick Foles is much more laid back. And depending on the person perceiving that, uh, you can kind of have a preference between the two or cast the two, and, and really there's redeeming qualities about both. Wait, I'm actually, I, I wasn't even thinking about this. There was a report that came out, I guess it was earlier this week, that um, Carson Wentz not seen so favorably in the in the locker room. Who broke that? Was that Philadelphia Weekly? Uh, Philly Voice wrote that story, yeah. Forget whether it's true or not. Like, here you are, you're the Eagles B writer, it's now your offseason. You see that story come out. How do you respond? Like, what do you do? <laughs> so what you do is, is if it's if it's something that you don't know or, or you don't have insight on, then, then you're asking around. Even still, you're asking around, talking to different people. I guess you're doing your own reporting on it. In the case of, of Carson, you know, I mean, it's, it's such a hot button topic, hot button story. Like, I, I mean, it's something that, that we, when I say we, I, I mean, the other reporters and I, uh, have, have lived it now every day for three years. And so you have kind of your own perspective on, on the way he's viewed and his personality. And uh, if there's new information there, then you're checking it out. If it's kind of an opinion, I, I, I guess you're weighing in on the reporting that you already have. Like was your first reaction when you read that? Uh, whoever wrote this doesn't really know what he's talking about. Or is your first reaction? Oh, <laughs> this person knows what he's talking about. You're going through to see what's, what's new in there and, and what's opinion, what's speculation, who it's sourced by where it's, sourced um so you're you're doing that more 
Uh, all right. So you had Kent Babb on the uh, podcast a few weeks ago, and and uh-huh. Kent wrote a great story on Chip Kelly a few years ago when Chip was the coach. And he had a fact in the story that like Chip Kelly was once married and every report in there had him as this lifelong bachelor. And, and that's the type of story where you're like, Oh my God, how did I miss this? Like I, I I was literally in Chip Kelly's hometown. Like I was at a bar in Manchester, New Hampshire with Chip Kelly's friends from high school doing reporting on Chip Kelly. And, and I never knew he was married. Like, like that's, that's one of those where. Where like you you reconsider yourself as a reporter and being like, what the hell did I, I I get wrong here? How did I miss this? If it's something where it's a matter of perspective, then I think the approach is a little different. I actually think it's really funny. That's a that's a funny point, and I think non-reporters wouldn't wouldn't really think about this that much. Like, uh, you know, I wrote Walter Payton's biography, and when someone comes up to you and says, "Hey, how come you didn't put in? How come you didn't put in about his friend who committed suicide or whatever?" Your reaction isn't, oh, that's interesting. Your reaction is, fuck, 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 yes. fuck. There is no joy in learning that you missed a little something. You feel like you have to own everything about a subject. And when you don't, I'm sure when you read about Chip Kelly and his, his past marriage, a little tiny piece of you died for a day. Yes, I would say more than a day. Like that, that killed me. Yeah. And, and there are times when, when let's say a, a magazine writer comes in and you're just like, shit, what well, are, yeah. uh, What's he going to get that I don't have? Like I, I was saying Seth Wickersham from ESPN's like that. Like, like when he comes through, you're like, Oh, oh God, what is he going to get? I, I remember I was, um, so I was writing for the Washington Post. I was, I was there Virginia, Virginia Tech beat writer a few years ago. And there was this murder on the lacrosse team. And it was a real high profile story. And mm-hmm. I'm in the elevator at the courtyard in Charlottesville and a sports illustrated writer. This guy I really respect, he's on the elevator with me. And I'm thinking in the back of my head, like, oh my uh, God, <laughs> he, he's, he's, he's going to kill me on this story. It was uh, John Wertheim, I remember. Um, oh, and a friend of mine, I, I great was, reporter. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I was, you know, I introduced myself and, and was very polite. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, why did he have to come here of all places? You know? Right. Let me ask you a final thing. The, uh, I remember when I had my bar mitzvah. 1985 Mount Kisco holiday and good times. And, um, it ended, you know, you spend all this time, you go through Hebrew school, you go through your bar mitzvah classes, you have a tutor, you do your bar mitzvah, everything is aiming toward the party. All your friends are there. You have the party. Uh, and then it's over and you're like, Oh, it's over. And I was wondering, you cover this amazing team. It's this amazing run. The city is engrossed. The characters are rich. It's awesome. It ends in one of the great Super Bowls of all time. Uh, the day after the Super Bowl, are you like, oh, what do I do now? Or are you relieved it's over? No. So, so the day after the Super Bowl, you're thinking about your follow up stories and, and, and the week ahead of you. And, you know, they had the parade coming up and, and they have locker room clean out day. And, you know, there's free agency coming up and players contemplating retirement. So all of that is kind of consuming your attention. A few weeks afterwards, when when kind of the the work's over, that's when um, that feeling you were talking about sinks in. Although in my case, it was it was a little different because so I remember I'm in the Minneapolis airport and uh, uh, I'm actually transcribing stuff there, and I get a text from this good friend of mine since since college, Mac Elb, who he's the Phillies writer 
at the athletic used to be the uh Phillies writer at the inquirer and he says so you're writing a book on this right and like that all of a sudden is like all right well how do you go about doing this and that that kind of took over my life in the weeks after the super bowl once everything kind of died down and in, in, in terms of my daily coverage that was was what kind of consumed my attention so so that took me through the off season and, and, and literally by the time i was finished with the writing and 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 the editing and and all that with the book the next season started so i i really didn't have a time to to kind of sit back and reflect on it until probably these next few weeks once things died down for this season funny i, I wrote a book about the usfl that came out last year and um a lot of those guys played in the USFL and then jumped, or they played in the NFL and then they jumped right to the USFL season. And they talked about how it just beat them up physically and mentally. It sounds like you are the modern version of the NFL USFL player who never took a break. And now you're, are you, do you need a mental break? Like, did you need a sort of time that you never got to sort of just sit on a beach somewhere? Uh, no, I, I, I wouldn't say that because. I mean, it's it's not as physically arduous as playing football like the USFL guys, but certainly mentally. And and like my wife, I mean, she said you really need to take a break this off season. Right. Um, and and like we, you know, we have an eighteen month old at home, and then we just had another. And so uh, she was the one pushing me to, I, I guess, really take a breath after the Super Bowl and the book and all that. Well, Zach, seriously, you put on a masterful performance of covering a team down the stretch, which is great, like really great. And and one of my, my joys of doing this podcast is reading writers who you don't get to read every day and really digging into their stuff. So I, uh, I appreciate you doing this. That means a lot coming from you. Thank you, Jeff. I want to thank today's guest, Zach Berman, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Zach on Twitter at ZBerm and visit his website at buyzachberman.com. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. One can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Writers Singing Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. And reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.